and welcome to Season 2 of Power Talk. Power Talks are short, powerful interviews from leading youth violence experts, spreading new ideas and sharing best practice. For more information on the work our charity Power the Fight does and to find out how you can help empower communities to end youth violence, please visit www.powerthefight.org.uk. On today's episode, we have criminologist Dr. Elaine Williams discussing her work examining the power of labelling in the context of violence. Dr. Elaine Williams. Hi. Uh, Welcome to Power Talk. It's uh, really great to have you here. Tell us who you are, what you do, Where's wonderful things? Yep, my name's Elaine. I'm a lecturer in criminology at Greenwich University. Um, I finished a doctorate in uh, knife crime, looking at the labelling process and how um, our response to this particular crime type has shaped youth work and policy uh, and impacted on policing. And I came out of my experiences as a youth worker Uh, specialising in um, crime prevention work in South London. Um, And, yeah, the the experiences I had with young people and the kind of um, tensions I felt or the problems that I identified in our delivery and our approach. Amazing. Tell us, talk us through that journey. Mm. Because obviously it sounds like uh, you started off as a practitioner and then you've gone into academia and you've taken this whole what you've learned and, you know, you've got a doctorate out of it. But mm. what, what was that process like and what type of experiences did you have as a practitioner which led you to this research? Yeah, so um, when I left university for my undergraduate, I was around 21. I liked filmmaking and I liked young people and I managed to get a job um, leading filmmaking projects and making videos with young people. But this was around 2008, 2009 which, as a lot of people will know, is this kind of uh, big moment in terms of youth violence when people started to um, hear more about that intensification of um, violence between young people. There was a peak of homicides, child-on-child homicides. So around that time when I was working in quite an arty, quite creative industry, there was this kind of uh, push towards people developing um, intervention programmes that would... Um, provide specialist um, probation courses, really, for young people that were referred through these services. So I was part of a group of people, a fantastic team of people, Mm. um, who came up with these kind of 12-week courses that would... um, The young people would be referred to us by uh, the Youth Offending Service. Um, Usually they'd be caught carrying a knife, um, and they would have to come to these sessions, and we would take them through this course... Um, and I'm always kind of torn when I think about what we did because actually there were some great aspects of what we provided and I think for many young people we did great work and um, that was certainly the feedback that we got from the young people at the time but I always felt, well more and more I felt as we did it that there were some problems Um, in our response to this. And that was really kind of um, what made me think about uh, making an academic intervention rather than a kind of youth work intervention, that we needed someone who had experienced that firsthand to then communicate that through theory um, in order to impact policy um, that would then improve the practice. So, just to be clear, you're a practitioner, you deliver these interventions in... uh, 
youth offending settings. Uh, some of it was good. Some of the practice you felt could have been improved upon. Mm -hmm. And this led you to your kind of, how do I demonstrate, improve, research, academia, blah, blah, blah. What were some of the problems? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you that. Yes. Um, okay, there's like two, there were two main problems. Okay. okay, the first one was, you know, let's say we've got a group of 10 young people who've been referred. Yeah. Within that group, you're going to have some very complex needs. Yes. Yeah? Like? So you would have, let's say out of 10 people, out of 10 young people, you'd have at least two that couldn't really read and write properly. You'd have a couple of them who would turn up every week and they smelt really bad because somebody wasn't taking care of them, you know? You, you could tell that there was neglect. Um, you'd have uh, a proportion of that group that were in care um, and you would have a proportion of that group who were bullied. You know, they'd, they'd carried a knife um, because they were genuinely uh, scared that they were going to be killed after school. Um, and they'd carried... Um, a knife to school that you might have been just that one time um, and because of their nervousness, you know, or uh, it was pulled up on, they would find that that would affect their whole life then because they'd be kicked out of school, end up in a pro, um, probably not get um, GCSEs. So, you know, we were dealing with those kind of complexities. And the thing was, I don't want to say, um, let's feel sorry for them. You know, I'm not saying, you know, these guys are victims and they were girls as well, girls, guys and girls. Um, I'm not saying these, you know, let's think of them as victims. What I'm saying is, it's not as straightforward as good and bad. Right. And I think when, when we look at the kind of tabloid response to knife crime uh, and, and that kind of clickbait coverage, it's very easy to get this narrative of good and bad. Yeah. And actually what you have are complete people. You know, they are whole people. Yeah. And they have very complex very and very intricate lives and carrying a knife was only very one small aspect of their whole and so when we were running these sessions and designing them on this one small aspect of their lives we were ignoring uh, or not addressing this much broader set of um, issues they were facing um, that were that were often unique to themselves but also there were some reoccurring kind of problems so that was one thing mm. that was one problem <coughs> Um, and, you know, that, that kind of affected the practice. The other problem was, and I know <laughs> this might, you know, you might disagree with me on this, but... Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're going to say. Like, the other so. problem I found was there is this language of, um, like, an individual responsibility. And we would, what we were telling young people is, and what we still tell young people is, um, make better choices you know, this is up to you. You are the master of your own destiny. You know, if you just try harder, if you just aspire higher, and we even name the courses after this, we call them aspire higher, make better choices. You know, the, the, the whole kind of premise is that young people can make better decisions and fix their problems for themselves, yeah? Mm. And this, for me, was massively problematic. Go on, explain why. Well, first of all... Because it sounds completely... <laughs> I know. Not, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate, but let's say, I mean, it sounds completely logical. I know, yeah. Why, it, why wouldn't you inspire a young person to make better choices? Yeah, and I... Surely and, as a parent, you would do the same thing to your right, children. Right, and, and there Eat is... Eat your vegetables, all that type of stuff. 
it feels empowering. Like it's very, it's an empowering kind of position and it makes the sessions feel great. And it also looks really great on a funding application and which I've written hundreds of, you know. So definitely this kind of um, empowering speech is, it, it feels good, it sounds good, it looks good on paper. However, they're children. Right. They are children living in a society that we, the adults, are creating for them. They don't vote, we vote. You know, they're not creating the circumstances that they're then coming up against in their daily lives. We do that. So, you know, as a society, are we telling ourselves the same thing? Are we saying to ourselves, make better choices? Or is this all directed at young people? Now, that was one problem. But remember, I was doing this 2010, 2011, 2012. So it got increasingly hypocritical for us to tell young people to fix up, to, to, to um, overcome their challenges when, when we were increasing the challenges that they were facing. Well, it's an interesting period of time, isn't it? Because that's when austerity kicked in. 1.6 billion over four or five years came off local and central government resources, which impact youth services and detached yep. workers. So yep. completely hypocritical to say to a child, made better choices when the government are making very bad ones. Yeah, and, and, and what were we doing to stop that? What did we do when they cut the EMA for young people? You know? And so it was all this kind of idea of young people are responsible, young people are responsible. Meanwhile, where's our responsibility as adult society to keep them safe, to keep them happy, to give them opportunities to make them prosper? Yeah? So this was the massive problem for me that we just kept perpetuating this. And I remember, you know, we had this session where we would build up, you know, the momentum, we would tell them all of these things, uh, you know, that they can change. And then we would end it with this big question. We would say, are you part of the problem or are you part of the solution? I know you remember this, because, you know, these are the kind of things that we tell you. <laughs> this is the I'll question. Tell, I'll, tell, I'll tell you, you'd be like, no, I don't. Uh, you know. <laughs> I, do, I do remember that. You yeah, know, because this is, as yeah. youth workers, this, course, these, classic we, this is classic youth work. Yeah. We would say, are you part of the problem? Or are you part of the solution? It's supposed to make them go, I'm part of the solution. Well, let's ask ourselves the same question. Yeah. If I keep producing this narrative of individuality and telling young people, take control, take control, it's up to you, you decide. Am I part of the problem or am I part of the solution? Okay. So I had to do something, you know, I had to, I had to make a, a break from that and to say, um, well, let's look at this slightly differently. Okay, and what, and how did you look at this slightly differently? Yes. This, is, this, is, this is it, because, you know, what, you're, what you basically just explained is historic youth work. Uh-huh, yeah. So, so, you know, to fly in the face of that to come up with a different narrative is not easy. So what did you do? It's not easy, and especially around such a subject that... Um, you want to take very seriously and you want to be seen to, acting, to be acting urgently. And I think the problem for me was how do we investigate this in a different way without being insensitive to the issues and, and taking a step back and slowing down our analysis. So that was kind of a, a, a problem. Um, but what, came, what, what happened pretty quickly was I noticed that when I was searching the history of knife crime, we just uh, started using this term very recently. Like it's quite a millennial phenomena. We started talking about knife crime around 2002, 2003. Before that, we never used the phrase at all. So that kind of took me back to the beginning to say, you know, when did we start using this phrase? Why? What was going on at the time politically, socially? Um, and how do we define it? Um, so that was the first step. And um, that revealed quite a lot of things. Mm. Um, 
One was that we use this very broad set of data to define knife crime. Um, so we often throw in there like domestic violence, adult adult violence with knives, adult violence with bottles, um, adult violence with screwdrivers. So we have this very broad um, source of data. But when it comes to actually applying that, there's a very narrow group of people that we assign it to, namely young, black, inner city, males. Shock horror. Shock horror. So mm. What a surprise. So, you know, it doesn't... Actually, when we look at how knife crime is defined and used, there's a contradiction from the start. It doesn't really make sense as a term. But what happens after, it, after it's kind of uh, defined is it, it shapes the whole conversation around a knife culture. So knife crime and knife culture sort of come... Uh, come into use yeah. at the same time and it becomes a way to signal um, certain stereotypes, certain understandings of criminality that are age old, we all know um, how, how wrong these are. But like it, knife crime equals young black man in inner yeah, city. And, and that the cause of that crime is in their blackness, you know, is in themselves and that there's a culture, there's a cultural problem in that sector of the community, um, whether it's like dysfunctional families, absent fathers, you know, all of these kind of tropes, these stereotypical racist tropes come into play through the label without actually having to say all the racist stuff. Right. So you can just say knife crime, knife culture, knife crime, and you mean all of that stuff. Wow. That's not fashionable anymore, and, you know, it's kind of not politically correct. But you're still saying it, you're just using this new language of knife crime and knife culture. So, the first part of the research was to kind of dismantle that. Then you say, okay, so if this phrase has... And so, just to cut you, I mean, yeah. this isn't new though, isn't it, where we take a phrase... Mm. So, I remember... Um, Chav. Mm. And that was people saying that, and people saying it in yeah. government circles. Mm. But what you really meant was white working class yeah. men. Yeah. Or white working class women. So, the idea that a... A label mm-hmm. can actually mean something completely different. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. Or, or the elephant in the room. Yeah. That's not a new thing, is it? And um, we did it with gangs, you know, and I think we still do it with gangs, but in a sense, knife crime has been more sly in yeah, the, sure. you know, because I think gangs. Uh, is, a new, is, a, is a word in itself. Knife crime sounds quite matter-of-fact, crime with knives. You know, it's kind yeah. of got this kind of descriptive element, um, which has concealed some of the ways it's worked on our imaginations for decades. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I think there is a kind of... People know that language is dangerous. People know, but it's about when do we stop and recognise it and make those changes in the way we talk about things. And also, we've got to be careful with what they're replaced by. Because they have this, oh, yes. you know, they have yeah. this uh, way of, you know, replicating themselves with new terms. I mean, I won't go into it, but, you know, we will shift on to something new. There will well, be a new thing. It's interesting, like, if you say something like county lines, <clears throat> you know. That's a new phrase. That's a new phrase, up. which is something which has been going on for years. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, child exploitation is kind of like, well, what, that was a term which is not a new term, but yeah. it keeps like reinventing itself and basically it means the same thing. So what, okay, so... Okay. What, what, so the, what, did you, okay. what did you find? Well, <laughs> what I did was I thought, okay, if we don't talk about young people, right. if we don't talk about that act of knife crime and we talk more about the context of... Uh, the, the historical, economic, and political context in which there has been this intensification of violence between young people. If we look behind the label, 
put the label over there. Have a look behind the label. What was really going on in 2000, the beginning of 2000? What were those okay. sociological changes right. that happened around the turn of uh, the century and in the, in the decades that followed that have caused this, uh, you know, intensification of violence between young people? Mm. And there were some interesting... What was going on <laughs> well, was, at the turn of the century? First of all, which was happening? I interviewed a load of youth practitioners who were working at that time. Um, so it wasn't like I, you know, I would have the answers to this. Mm. It was people who'd been working with young people who would know, um, people who were living in those communities would know. Um, and, um, okay, so some interesting things came out. First of all, um, there was this fragmentation of our uh, communities. Is, you know, and I looked specifically at South London, this is where I kind of focused my interviews, and there was this change, and, and we cannot separate that from gentrification, uh, and um, that's a kind of uncomfortable conversation for many people to have, but we need to think about the fact that the 90s, um, we had, we had uh, sort of areas that identified collectively, but they would be borough-wide. Mm. So we would have the whole of Peckham didn't like the whole of Lewisham. And there were scuffles. The whole of Southwark yes. didn't like the whole of, you know, you've got to get out. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, 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 get let's go, let's go, sorry. Both, Southwark. Both and, areas. Yeah. I was thinking of the Peckham boys. Yeah, okay, yeah. so let's I, say Peckham boys had this massive area yeah. that, that, that they had a collective identity and yeah. sense of um, belonging. Yeah. Um, and then you had Ghetto, mm. which also had their own kind of sense of belonging and there were scuffles in between and there was kind of sneaking over to here to write Peckham boys on a bridge in Lewisham and sneaking back again yeah so there were these kind of um, um, conflicts going on what happened in the 2000s was the generation that were kind of owning that conflict passed it down to the generation below them which fragmented into tiny pockets of named collectives. So suddenly, we're not just dealing with borough versus borough, we're dealing with, um, let's just put it in council talk, wards versus wards. Exactly. So you've got these very localised groups of young people who cannot travel anymore safely in their own borough or in their own area. Um, and this obviously increases the likelihood of violence in their everyday lives massively. So, the, so it wasn't just that, you know, intensity was increasing, but the frequency of altercations between groups was going up and the incidence of violence um, along with that. Now, the house prices were going up. You know, people, people who had been elders in these communities were moving out because they could no longer afford to stay in the area. Uh, policing was increasing in these areas that were trying to make these areas safe for the newcomers. There was a lot going on mm. um, in, the, in this kind of period. Um, there was a political move towards home ownership rather than council houses. So this broke up communities. So this fractioning off wasn't just what young people were doing. It was happening across society in these suburbs. These suburbs were becoming fraction, uh, fractional. Wow. Yeah. So that, yeah, so clearly, because there is uh, fragmentation of communities, I mean, interesting you said about the passing down. Some of that wasn't just a case of, well, you know, like you have rites of passage. Some of it is that these guys have been removed mm. from death or prison. Yes. And therefore there was a vacuum left. There was also an increased deportation yes. uh, during that period. And so you would take influential elders out and there would be a, a power vacuum while people tried to reorganise those informal uh, hierarchies. Right. And that causes 
increased uh, violence between groups as well. So all of these things are going on, which we don't really talk about when we talk about um, youth violence. We don't really talk about when we talk about knife crime. Do we, do we contextualise it in these changing sociologies um, uh, and terrains, if you like, mm. of urban living? Well, that is the, that is the question. <laughs> so, OK, because this is, for me, it's just fascinating. And also why this is so important. Mm. The listener mm. is because you're, what you're, you're doing very well is going behind the headlines yeah. and looking at the, the root causes of why we're in this situation. So going back to your whole, uh, I'm really annoyed about the whole way that we do youth work kind yeah. of thing and we stop need to put it on the young person to be the answer and making better choices is a really bad name for a... Yeah. What did you then discover? Did you find a, an alternative way of doing youth work which takes into account the change in sociological um, environment, mm. the, uh, the change in economic environment we're dealing with, the change in cultural yeah. uh, environment, and also, you know, the, the increase and then decrease in policing. Did you... Is there a model? Yeah, that's the big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the doctor. <laughs> I'm hoping you've got like the answer. Otherwise, well, I might as well do the PhD. I have, you know. I have some recommendations. Okay, recommendations. But you know, that's, that's I, 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 I like to stay, um, you know, On in that. You no, know, I like to collaborate and I like to yeah. listen. And so, you know, I can make suggestions, but it's for all of us. So give us, give us your top three suggestions. Top three suggestions. Well, first of all. One of the things we've seen in this country over the last kind of decades of while this violence was increasing is a deindustrialization of our whole nation. Mm. Um, and we don't really talk about the effects of that in terms of worklessness. Or British um, still, even. Yes. Recently is now yeah. all going pear-shaped, so yes. Yeah, so I think there's a sense that children's well-being also depends on their parents' well-being. And if we want to increase a kind of stability and... Um, um, uh, comfortableness or you know happiness, safety, it has to be a, across the board. We can't always focus our solutions on 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds because they are a product of the environments they are living in. Yes. And, they, and so it has to be everyone. We have to stop punishing poor people for being poor. Whoa. You know? Say, wait, say that again. <laughs> what a line. Say it again. We have to stop punishing poor people for being poor. And this is an ideological problem that our whole nation has. That we, we, there's, it's almost this sadistic pleasure in making poor people suffer more, sanctioning them, bedroom taxes, um, sanctions for not turning up on time, this kind of criminalisation of being poor, when we know that this nation committed to a financial system that isn't manufacturing, that isn't production, that the jobs were going to go. So there was always going to be that this was a designed outcome of our economic system. There was always going to be unemployment. So let's make, if we're going to commit to this fiscal system of neoliberalism and yeah. this kind of, then provide for the people that will be workless, who you know will be workless because of this decision that the, that the, that the policies are making, yeah? So the first step is to acknowledge this. That it's, there's nothing wrong with people if they're poor. There's nothing, they haven't done anything necessarily wrong and it's not their fault if they can't find work because there's a whole big structure mm. that's making that very difficult. So let's make sure that people are comfortable no matter what hand they were dealt when they were born by the luck of the draw, yeah? So that's across the board. Yep. Then I feel like this political conversation needs to happen with young people as well. Yes. So instead of talking about individualism, make the changes, do this, do that, 
let's talk to young people about politics. Let's talk to them about the economy and what has changed in this country over But some people would argue that's happening. I mean, you've got young people parliaments. Um, you know, when you talk to City Hall in London, for mm. example, they do a lot of community events and they try and invite young people in. Is, is that not what's happening or are we saying we need okay. something different? Yes, but because of those structures being incorporated in the main frame, they become quite depoliticised. You're talking about a breakaway. Yeah, well, community, community politics right. and, a, and a collective activism. Because part of my research was to take my research findings and present them to focus groups with young people. So I did 20 focus groups with young people all across South London. And I presented them with these kind of political histories of London, and they'd never heard of them. They didn't know about the riots in the 80s. They didn't know about the Battle of Lewisham in 77. No, no kind of um, collective memory of struggle or how working class communities have come together right. to yep. um, defend their rights, their human rights. So they were really powered up by that. And actually, you know, if we can... That is fascinating. Mm. So the fact that there's a generation who does n do not have a shared history of some of the most significant uh, parts and issues within our community and how the marginalised have battled. Yeah. And that is an intergenerational problem, isn't yeah, it? Like yeah. The elders are not connecting with the younger people and, and that sense of pride mm -hmm. not being there, they will then try and find something else. That's exactly what I was going to say, is actually if you don't provide this kind of alternative, empowering um, narrative of, of, of pride and self-worth, then it expresses itself in other ways. And that masculinity comes into there and it, and it expresses itself in very dangerous ways. Wow. So part of um, the solution is to provide these empowering identities that are based on collective memory, of things that we have achieved in communities um, and the steps that have been made in the past. Wow. I mean, that's a genuine wow, because I think, you know, you've just articulated um, exactly what I've always felt has been part of, the, part of the problem, where you have not got this shared history and there isn't that conversation going on. And you talk to even young people about Stephen Lawrence, I don't know who Stephen Lawrence is. Right. One of the most significant situations, tragic situations, which not just impacted South East London, but changed the face of how we look at race relations in the UK. So when you hear that people are, I don't know who, who this guy is, it's, it's odd. Yeah. Because what that means, it's like I remember when I was in, growing up in the 80s, I'm too young to really remember everything which was going on about apartheid and Nelson Mandela. Mm. But my parents made sure I knew Absolutely. what was going on. Yeah. So years later, I am clued up on, on that particular issue. Yeah. So something, there's a disconnect there's between a disconnect. even the parents engaging yeah. with their young people. Do you think that's partly because, going back to your idea, yeah. thing about poverty, yeah. I had this conversation elsewhere, but... Is it that mainly because their poverty is increasing, mm. parents are now thinking, or carers are now thinking, do you know what, it's just about survival. Right. I, I, as much as I'd like to have the space yeah. Yeah. to do other things. I've got to save my one and make sure they're okay. Yeah, definitely. It's a scarcity mentality, isn't it, of like protecting your own. But And I also think that the construction of young people as criminal or um, deviant 
this kind of change in the way we think about young people is also part of that as well. People are scared to talk to young people. Sure. And, and people don't have that, um, they don't think that young people want to know about mm. their past. So there is this judgment made about young people that, um, and, and, and that's, that's been very interesting to challenge that when I'm in my focus groups, because I've seen adults who were at those, you know, watching those focus groups who didn't know that young people, the, the young, they know the young people very well, they were their teachers, and they, I've never seen so-and-so talk like that. I didn't know that he was so interested in So you've got adults politics. who are now surprised that because, and this goes back to how we teach, mm. so suddenly mm. there's, an, there's another method, because, mm. um, you know, some of the people I've interviewed for this season have basically been quite critical of the education system, saying, you know, we're not teaching young people about how to handle money. Or we're not talking about history outside of the white context. Mm. You know, and, and then what you've just said, that as soon as you start talking about things that really matter, Relevant. those kids who are, mm-hmm. uh, who have told that there's no enthusiasm or you're not interested suddenly become interested, which suggests that maybe it needs to be a <laughs> radical something? change. Right. How we, I mean, I was saying to yeah. a young person, not too long ago, who said there needs to be a radical change of how we do education. Yeah. This is a young person, 19-year-old yeah. talking. So that, there is something in that. I, I, I think that's definitely... Not that I'm blaming teachers. No, and, then, but that's, and that's the thing. Sometimes I think we have become a society compartmentalised and whose responsibilities is whose. Because right. what I was going to say is my third final point of you know, what we need to do is more of this, actually. And... Um, Academia is at fault for, you know, academia has a huge amount of knowledge about um, social structures, political theory, economic theory, but does it communicate those out and apply those in the context where they're needed? Well, can I go deeper? Is academia appealing only to white, the white middle classes? That, that's not yeah. to say that I don't know black professors, because I do, but even white working class people I know in academia have struggled. Yeah, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. And I think this is the same as what we're looking at in schools is, is the education relevant to the people who are studying it? Because if your professors don't understand Mm. what's important to you, if they're not teaching what's important to you, are you going to connect with it? But we also got to be careful as well, because we don't want to make the assumption that just because you're black, all you want to do is talk about black issues. Mm -hmm. So there's that flip side as well, where we we can't, we're not a monolith, we Mm. can't be just like, well, you know, black man, black woman, we're going to put you in the race studies. It's kind of like, so there is a fine line, although I totally agree with what you're saying. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, but, you know, there's a culture there's a culture at, in the academy that is, ex, that is exclusive and exclusionary. Yes. yes. So even when you're not talking about race, there, is, there are social norms. <laughs> There's still stuff there you are, need to know wait, about there are, Yeah, there are yeah. things that are going to make certain students feel uncomfortable in that room. And that goes to the architecture. And, you know, there's lots of things about universities that are um, elitist. And, you know, yeah. because that's been their whole thing is, yeah. you know, you come here, you get this kind of special piece of paper. So they, they kind of pride themselves on that. But, yeah. you know, it's a two, it has to happen both ways. We need people in academia who've got these kind of knowledge and experience and perspective and vice versa. We need academics to come out of the institution. And, but this is part uh, of the problem we've got because, you know, you, you invited me to, to, to speak at, at Greenwich University. It was fascinating to speak to first-year criminology uh, students. Um, but I, I, I realised very quickly that in terms of practical 
experience, that, that doesn't really come into um, people's teaching. So I saw a lot of, they're great, mm. but I saw a lot of naivety, mm. which you expect at, you know, in your first year uni. But I'm like, where are you going to get the on-the-ground experience mm-hmm. to make you the best practitioner possible? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's a whole nother conversation. It and I, even I've recently been having conversations with some people where I'm like, we've got to get these guys into the field yeah. early yeah. So, so they can really have an, a, a clearer understanding. Because they're the ones that are likely to become the managers. Well, you know? And that's another conversation. Uh, <laughs> and, uh. and to be fair... I did see a bit of diversity yeah. in your yeah. in your lecture. Yeah. So I was like, oh, you know. Well, but interestingly, just yeah. to say, the, the, and I'm not going to expose who this person was, but the the person who had the most empathy who I spoke to was a young woman of colour who was local. Mm-hmm. And we won't go into what happened, but it was interesting the ownership she felt. Mm. Of this, um, of this particular yeah. situation we're talking around, like, you know, a, a particular situation which happened locally. And I was like, that will mark you out yeah. from the average. And I think having you there brought that out in ways right. that it wouldn't if I had I done out, the session. I out the emotion. No, let's... Let's be real. Like, actually, one of the most exciting things about getting the job at Greenwich for me was I can finally use this network of sure. amazing people that I've yeah. worked with over the past decades, you know, and, and bring those to the university to show students, you know, what's really going on out there. Yeah. And vice versa, they get, you know, they get to see that, but they also get to talk to me, and I'm not, I've got that practical experience. So it, it is an exciting opportunity to get a foot in the door of these kind of institutions yeah. Yeah. and change it from the inside. I mean, I know we're all. No, 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 because I you think know, that, this is always part of the... No, that's part of the thing, and I think you are somebody who's always been that. You've, you, any door you've gone through, you've brought other people through, and you're also changing the structures. We need more people. You know, you're my friend, you're someone I've known for years, but you are also, if we were going to put it into, like, uh, political racial talk, you're a white ally in these situations, and I think it's, we need more white allies who do have... Uh, entry points into elite institutions to, to kick down the doors and smash the glass ceilings for others to come through. So, yeah. Um, our time is running out. Mm-hmm. I always ask, is there anything you would like to say as a final word which you have not mentioned? Yeah, I guess I would just say let's push things forward beyond labels, beyond... Um, these kind of categories that we put crime in particular and don't be afraid to um, apply politics, to apply economic theory because these broader structures help us to understand the acts of individuals that are trying to struggle to survive within them and you know it's always nice to work with you and things like this, things like what you do and bringing these experts together and having these conversations is really impacting and can spread that kind of knowledge and collaboration to make some really big changes. Yeah, and that's what we want to do. We definitely want to do that. And I just want to thank you. Thank it's you. It's been amazing just to, to watch you kind of just excel and grow um, in many ways. And so I want to thank you for your time. Thank Elena. you.